God is not happening in the way that it once had. And David gathered all the chosen men of Israel. This is a Hebraism for soldiers. 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah uh, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. That is, who sits enthroned on the cherubim of the ark. This is the presence of God. And they carried the ark on a new cart, which was a no-no, and brought it to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzziah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the cart. Now, we're going to skip down, if you're following along, to verse 18. Some bad things happen as a result of the ark being placed on the cart. But, nonetheless, as the ark is being brought back into Jerusalem, this is David's response. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. That is a bit unfortunate that she despised him. But here's the scenario. God's presence has been absent from God's people. God's people have not been able to gather and worship as they had in the presence of God, in the presence of of not only the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, but, but where God sits enthroned among his people. And as this Ark, as David goes and he takes his trained men, his soldiers, and he captures the Ark, and he brings it back into Jerusalem, there is just this pure ecstatic joy that comes out of David as he dances through the streets of Jerusalem. Because not only is God's ark and his presence back among his people, but his people are gathered to worship him in his presence. And it has been my longing, and to some degree even my disappointment, please don't mean that's necessarily with you, that's a a large and general statement, to see the lack of joy in God's people, the lack of enthusiasm in God's people, as we have returned to the church post-COVID. Oh, that God's people would dance with joy as they come into his presence with his people to sing his praise where he dwells among us. And yet, so much of the response of the church as we regather ourselves post-COVID is, uh, do I have to go? Can't I watch online? Maybe I just won't go at all. I've learned over the past couple of years that I don't really need the church. There's an ultimate thought of self-deception. Anyways, why do I bring all this up? If the question is, Is it okay with Pastor Logan to dance in church? I suppose that depends on what the motive for dancing is. I I don't have anything wrong fundamentally with dancing. But I would, I would, and I do pray that we would love the gathering of God's people so much 
with such excitement that as we draw together in worship, it might result in this kind of joy. Well, uh, let's turn our attention now to the book of Matthew, which is uh, what we are going to give uh, most of our time and attention to today. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25. So follow along with me as I read that to you, and then I will pray. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did As the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we gather today with hopefully great joy, great joy to be gathered as your people, not only to be gathered as your people, but to be gathered freely, to worship freely. Lord, we know that there are people gathered today who who do not have such privilege. They gather under threat of life. Uh, They gather under threat of imprisonment. They, They gather under law and commands not to. And we get to gather uh, freely of of our own will without any restrictions. May we delight to gather together and to sing your praise and to declare your glory. May we understand that while you dwell in all of us as individuals, there is a special and unique way in which you dwell in the gathering of your church. And may we delight in both realities, that you dwell in me and in us. Father, we pray this morning for the Reisters and for uh, the ministry that we have the privilege of supporting Lord, we pray that uh, you would grant them wisdom, as they've asked us to pray, to know when to expand their outreach ministries and discovery Bible classes. Lord, we also pray for the current high rates of COVID where they are, and uh, specifically the the high levels of fear that exist among the people uh, that that they minister to. And Lord, I pray that their fear of you might uh, set them apart as distinct, and not, not just them but the other believers around them, Lord, that those who fear you more than COVID, who fear you more than death, might might be a great example and witness and testimony to the world uh, around them. Lord, I want to pray this morning specifically for this shooting that occurred in Buffalo uh, that was ethnically charged and motivated. What What a tragedy to see in our world. And Lord, I pray, um, I pray that we here would be a church uh, committed to, to praying for such situations. 
that we would be a church committed to seeing the gospel uh, tear down such dividing uh, things among us. Lord, I pray that the church there in Buffalo might, might step up re- regardless of ethnicity or, or culture or skin color and seek to love people around them, uh, to seek to offer the healing and grace that can only be found in the gospel of of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we might even be able to offer the only explanation for such evils in our world, and that is the sin that dwells so uh, so painfully in all of us. So Lord, even in this most difficult of situations, we pray that you would, uh, would give comfort and life and the spread of the gospel to those who are mourning and no doubt angry and hurting today, Lord. Lord, we pray that such things would never uh, even well up in us for even one moment, but that we would regard everyone as they are, as people, as, as image bearers of you, uh, worthy of high regard and, and value and worth because we are created in your image. Lord, as we turn our attention now to your word, give us open eyes to understand it. Give us soft hearts to receive it. And Lord, work both great faith and then as a response, great obedience in us as a result. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture makes some outrageous claims, does it not? Claims that are, uh, if we're intellectually honest, hard to believe. A virgin birth and the resurrection of the dead are probably two of the greatest difficulties. Even philosophers in Athens, as, as Paul is in Athens and he's, he's preaching to the people and, and he goes to the Areopagus and it's filled with people who are highly religious and they want to hear something new and they say, please come back and, and teach us this new thing. And they're listening and they're attentive and they're engaged and then he says, Jesus raised from the dead and a bunch of them are like, we're out. Because the dead don't rise. The dead don't come to life. Scripture makes some outrageous claims. And Scripture seeks to explain these claims, to give evidence and credence for these claims, but oftentimes not in the way we think. See, oftentimes we think, uh, show me proof. Show me proof scientifically, that God created the heavens and the earth. If to prove something scientifically is both observable and repeatable, you can neither prove evolution nor creation. Because whatever happened back then is not observable nor repeatable. And as long as there is a scientist in a lab doing experiments, you're not going to prove evolution because there is intelligence involved in the experiments. So in Genesis 1, when God tells us about creation, the simple explanation is, in the beginning, God. There's the explanation. And the reality is it is the greatest explanation. Even if I could scientifically prove 
to you, uh, and, and I think there's a lot of evidence out there, don't get me wrong, but, but even if I could inconclu or conclusively, rather, if I could conclusively and decisively convince the world that intelligent design must be the way things came about, it is still not a better explanation than that of God. Because since God exists, and because he is all-powerful, he is the ultimate and perfect explanation of all things. The resurrection is given the same explanation, Acts 2.32. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. The explanation for the impossible in the resurrection, as we understand it, is God. And the explanation for the virgin birth is also God. Here we see in Matthew 1.18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When Mary, his mother, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This is in reality the highest and best explanation we can come to in Scripture. And the reality is, as we come into contact with people who don't believe this, some other explanation isn't really going to convince them. If it's not a good enough answer, probably no answer is ever going to be. The good news is, it's not our job as Christians to answer every object objection. This doesn't mean we cannot answer objections. It doesn't mean we should not answer objections. It's simply, and maybe I mean this is the most freeing task for us, is that in our evangelism, our, our task is not to explain how God did what he did, but that God did what he did. And the convincing of people that it's true comes by the same power that all of these things happened, by the Holy Spirit. It's not you who has to convince people that Jesus is the virgin-born Son of God raised from the dead. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Your job is to tell people that God did it. The, the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. What a freeing thought, is this not? What a freeing thought that you will never stand before God and have Him say, you know, if you would have just read that one book, had that one answer, or said that one thing to that person, they would have believed, but instead they're going to spend an eternity in hell. You'll never hear God say that. Our job is not measured in, in how many people respond to the gospel that we preach. It is to preach the gospel and let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit will do. That all being said, the virgin birth doesn't happen in a vacuum either, though. There is a bunch of, of God's activity throughout human history that leads us up to the virgin birth. There is Sarah, who as an old uh, barren woman gives birth to Isaac. There is Manoah's barren wife giving birth to Samson. There is the barren Hannah giving birth to Samuel. And much closer to the events that we're looking at here in the book of Matthew, there is Elizabeth, who is beyond childbearing uh, years, the cousin of Mary, who in her old age 
is told by the angel Gabriel that she will bear a son, and she does bear a son, in fact, John the Baptist, or maybe better, John the Baptizer. And even as we read in the book of Luke, uh, the, the pregnancy of Elizabeth is so miraculous that when Gabriel also comes to Mary and say, you're going to have a kid even though you're a virgin, and the proof of that is go visit your cousin Mary, she, or cousin Elizabeth. She's, she's pregnant too. And, and we're given two impossible uh, births to show this. The reality is that God is powerful. And if he exists, or rather since he exists, we believe in a powerful God who can do what is impossible to us. It is, however, necessary for, for uh, or, or really the virgin birth is, is only possible if you believe that God is both powerful and that he exists. And it is necessary for us to believe those things, for, for Jesus to be and to do what he came to do. It is necessary for us to understand the virgin birth of Jesus Christ in order for us to have faith in who Jesus is and what he came to do. Let's work our way through this text, explaining it, and then I will come back and, uh, and make some comments or some observations at the end that might help us. But let's, let's turn our attention now to this text. The, the language at the start of this in Greek is very stark. It's, um, it's not normal language. It's, it's very, very pointed. Um, the, the birth of Jesus Christ, Matthew wants us to understand, took place in this, in this manner. There's a specific way he wants us to understand Jesus, not so much necessarily just birth, but conception. Really, this is the conception of Jesus. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, this, this is something that, that is a little bit outside of our understanding because Jewish customs of the day, which seem to have been followed here as we read the book of Matthew, are very different from ours. Mary, most likely, if, 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 if this is a typical marriage in Jewish culture, is a young teenager probably about 15 years of age. She is not very old. And Joseph would have been much older. And they were betrothed. Now, for us, an engagement is not legally binding. But in the Jewish culture, it was. To be engaged, or rather to use the word here, to be betrothed was as binding as what we would consider marriage. And you could not break off a betrothal without a formal legal divorce. It was that binding. However, uh, as it should be in our world and our time as well, the couple had no conjugal rights during their betrothal. And so they were committed to one another. There was also even a ceremony that would have formalized this, this betrothal. Uh, to the same degree that a marriage would have been, and then they would not have come together uh, either sexually or to live in the same house immediately during the betrothal period. Preparations would have been made uh, for, for their marriage and for their life, and then they would have come back together later for a, a f another, as we would think of it, marriage ceremony that would result in then um, them being married and living together and all that that entails. 
So we're told here that Mary had been, tro- been betrothed to Joseph. So we must think of that as legally binding as a marriage, but before they came together. Now, the Greek word here, they came together, is not anything explicitly sexual. It is simply the statement from Matthew that they had not come to live together. But I do think that Matthew has... Um, wants us to understand that Mary and Joseph had not yet consummated their marriage because in verse 25 we're told he knew her not and knew to a Hebrew thinking would have been a sexual term. He did not know her until she had given birth to a son. And so we can see here that while, it, while Matthew is simply telling us they had not come together to live under the same house, they, they also had not consummated their marriage. And so in this time, before they came together, she was found to be with child. And this child was, as we're told here, from Holy Spirit. This is a a cause. The Greek construction here is a genitive of cause. The cause of Mary being with child was that she, uh, that, that the Holy Spirit had made her miraculously pregnant. Now, uh, as we consider this narrative along with the Luke narrative, Mary finds out that she's pregnant. The angel Gabriel says, go and see your cousin Elizabeth. And we can see from the timing, uh, the timeline of things in Luke that she did not delay. She made haste to go and to see her cousin Elizabeth. And so she spends three months with Elizabeth, and I think it's pretty safe to assume, in fact, I'm certain, based upon the text here today, that Joseph does not have any knowledge of this pregnancy yet. He just knows that she's gone to Jerusalem She's gone to the city to spend three months with her cousin. And she returns from the city pregnant. And obviously pregnant, most likely, at this point. And and he sees that she's pregnant. He knows that it's not possible that it's his child. And so it is a safe assumption on his part, based upon what we know from everyday life, that Mary had been unfaithful to him. And so he decides to divorce her quietly. Now this does speak to his character. It might even speak to his love and affection for her. It might even also speak to his wanting to protect his own reputation. But rather than having a large, public, scandalous divorce, numbers, in the book of Numbers, there is a provision for as few as two witnesses to oversee a divorce, and, and this seems to be what Joseph was after. Uh, to, he, was, he was intending to divorce Mary by giving her a certificate of divorce, divorce with no more than two witnesses to put her away quietly. But he did this, or and he did this, because he was a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. So while some have hypothesized that Joseph is looking out for himself, the text tells us that he's unwilling to put her to shame. This was a great kindness towards her in that day. But, verse 20, 
as he considered these things, behold, the word behold here is in the imperative voice. It is a commandment. Behold always means look. In other words, Matthew is saying, but as he was considering divorcing her, now take a look at this. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph. Now before we go on, I would just say that dreams that are also messages from an angel are incredibly rare in Scripture. God reveals himself through dreams sometimes, and he reveals himself through angelic messengers sometimes, but the combination of the two might just give us an indication of how important this message is. And so, in a dream, an angel of the Lord says, Joseph, son of David, and here in this word, we get this reminder or this statement, son of David, we get a reminder Uh, I don't think so much of who Jesus is. We've seen the lineage in the book of Matthew. We know Jesus, and even from Luke, is a son of David. I think the angel is reminding him who Joseph is. Joseph, you have a part to play in the birth of this one. He is not your biological son, but you will adopt him, and by that adoption, he will have a legal right to the throne of David. Joseph did not have no part here. Jesus needed, in a sense, Joseph to give him that legal right to the throne. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Notice the take her as your wife. This is where things begin to break down in our understanding of engagement and marriage. The betrothal was as legally binding as a marriage and required a divorce, but they were not yet husband and wife. And so he is still, at this point, not to to be afraid to take Mary as his wife, for that which is conceived in her, and we're given the explanation again, is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This is the Greek coordinate word to Joshua in Hebrew, the the long form of which means Yahweh is salvation, the short form of which means Yahweh saves. You shall call his name Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. I think... Oftentimes we criticize the Jews for looking for a political Messiah, a primarily political Messiah. And, and, and we we're quick to think, wow, man, these guys really missed the boat. Jesus came to save people from their sins. He didn't come to save them from Rome. The problem is that the Old Testament presents to us A Messiah who would be both a political ruler and a saving ruler. Who would save us from our sins and rule over us. And if you remember the last couple weeks we spent in Matthew, Matthew presents Jesus to us as the sovereign king. And if they're too quick to dismiss Jesus as a saving Messiah, 
we might be too quick to dismiss Jesus as a ruling Messiah. Have you forgotten that Jesus wants to rule your life? Or even that he deserves to rule your life? All this, verse 22, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is a quote of Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And in order to understand this text, we need to understand this verse. And I'm going to explain the context to you and then come back here momentarily to the importance of, um, of this in this passage. But Isaiah 7 is a pretty ridiculous chapter. Ahaz is king in Judah. And there are two kings who are headed towards Judah to conquer it. Pekah and Remaliah, I think, if I'm getting the names right off the top of my head. But these two kings are on their way to Judah to conquer it. And Ahaz is scared. He is afraid. I think we can find a very similar parallel to little Ukraine as Russia had moved troops, relatively little Ukraine, as Russia had moved troops to its border. And the whole world looks and says, oh, they're in trouble. They don't stand a chance. Ahaz doesn't seem to stand a chance. But God says to Isaiah, go to Ahaz and tell him, these kings will not conquer Judah. And then God has Isaiah tell Ahaz to ask for a sign. Now, one of the things we should learn is, yes, Scripture says not to put God to the test. But when God tells you through a prophet to, to ask for a sign, you should ask for a sign. And Ahaz says, oh no, I can't ask for a sign. And God sends uh, Isaiah back to Ahaz again to ask for a sign. And Ahaz once again refuses to ask for a sign. And God says, okay, tell him then that the sign will be that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. Wow. Wow. Now, can we see the ridiculous nature of this? Imagine, imagine Ukrainian soldiers right before the invasion, sitting on the border, wondering when the attack was going to come, and a prophet comes to them and says, don't worry, have no fear, a baby is going to be born. Can you see the army? Oh. <laughs> Well, that's it. We're safe. I mean, a baby. The Russian army stands no chance against a baby. This is ridiculous. What is a baby going to do? Well, we'll come back to what a baby can do. But in, in the first of many of Matthew's 
presenting to us of Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy, we are told that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which for us non-Hebrew speakers means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Now, from everything we can see and understand here, Joseph is not offering the minimum obedience. Because we're not told anywhere that he had to keep her a virgin until the baby was born, but simply that the baby was conceived while she was a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the way, for those who would come up with some contorted idea of the Holy Spirit having a sexual relationship with Mary, she would no longer be a virgin. So we can't put that kind of twisted thinking on this text. But Joseph goes further in his obedience and knew her not until she had given birth to a son, which uh, does a little bit of damage to the Catholic ideology that he perpetually kept her a virgin. She did not remain a virgin, just simply until Jesus was born. And again, in an act of obedience, he calls his name Jesus. This text that we're looking at today stands in great contrast to the one we saw last week. Verses 1 through 17, the genealogy of Jesus shows us that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. This text shows us that Jesus is the son of God. Verses 1 through 17 show us that Jesus has the legal right to the throne of David. Verses 18 through 25 show us that Jesus can be the Messiah. How does this text show us that Jesus has the ability to be the Savior? Well, let's look at three important facts about Jesus' birth. That'd be the next slide. Three important facts about Jesus' birth. There we go. Number one. It was a miraculous birth. It was a miraculous birth. Let me give you, if I may, two reasons why Jesus' birth had to be miraculous. First, it had to be a miraculous birth so that Jesus could make sufficient payment for sinners. See, the reality is the wages of our sin is death. We all deserve to die. But how can one person pay the price of death for all people. It has to, he had to be both the son of David and the son of God, both truly man and truly God, in order to make a sufficient payment for sinners. I've shared this verse recently, but I'm going to share it again. Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9, says, Truly no man can ransom another, or give to God the price of his life. Why not? Verse 8 for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. No man can ransom the life of another because no one man's life is valuable enough to pay for another man's life. Why? Because we're all sinners. But, verse 15 of Psalm 49, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol for he will receive me. How do you get a man who can make sufficient 
payment for sinners whose life is costly enough to pay the price, who can ransom, whose death can suffice. He is not a mere man. He is the God-man. And as God, the payment is sufficient. As man, he is able to die. If Jesus is just God, he can't die. If he's just man, he's not a valuable enough payment. But as the God-man, he can make a valuable enough payment and die in our place. Secondly, he had to be the God-man. This had to be a miraculous birth so that he could pay our sin and not his own. It had to be a virgin birth, not only so that Jesus could be the God-man who is valuable enough to pay for our sin and able to die, but, but he had to be born of a virgin so that he could make, uh, so that he could pay for our sin and not his own. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam, in what we call federal headship, represents the entirety of humanity in sin. And I believe, based upon this text and the next, Romans 5, that somehow in God's design... It is from a father to his children that, the, that sin nature is passed down. Can't remember who was at our house the other day, but Bradley was doing something, Henri, as all kids do. I'm not picking on Bradley. And Jennifer said something about him being my son. And somebody said, his son? Yeah. Guys, when your wife looks at you and says, you have to take responsibility for the sinfulness of your children... I don't think she's wrong. Romans 5, 12 to 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, not through a man and a woman, but through one man this happened. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, uh, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Why why is this important? Well, if if sin is, is transferred from Adam to his offspring all the way down to me, it would make sense that the only sinless human since Adam had no earthly father. No one to receive a sin nature from. He has to be conceived of the Holy Spirit without an earthly father in a miraculous fashion, not only so that he can be the God-man who is able to make a sufficient payment for sin, but who does not have sin of his own to atone for. Because if he's guilty of sin as he goes to the cross, he does not pay for you and he does not pay for me. In order for Jesus to save people from sin, he has to be born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit as the God-man. 
Fully God, valuable enough to pay for all of our sin, truly man, able to die, and born of a virgin without a sin nature, so that as he dies, he pays for our sin and not his own. Secondly, it was a foretold birth. We've already seen the context in Isaiah that, the, that a baby would be the sign to Ahaz that the kings would be defeated. And by the end of that chapter and through chapter 8, the baby is born. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit glad I'm not Hebrew because I wouldn't want a Hebrew name. The baby is named Meir Shalal Hashbaz. I can't even say that. How would you like to have that as your name? Now, in Isaiah, I don't think what is presented to us is a second virgin birth. I think when Isaiah comes to Ahaz, he says the virgin, which is a term in Hebrew that could mean both virgin in terms of never having sex or just young girl. And whoever it is who he's referring to, we're not told. We're told, hey, she's going to marry, conceive, and bear a child. And she does. And, and she, by the time she has that, this child, those kings are no longer in the picture. And Ahaz is not uh, fearful that these two kings are going to conquer him anymore. Well, if in the context of Isaiah chapter 7, this baby that is to be a sign is not born from a virgin, why then does Matthew, here in chapter 1, think that this verse points to Jesus and not simply Meir Shalal Hashbaz? The reason for that is because by the time we're done with all of that story in chapters 7 and 8 of Isaiah, chapter 9 presents us as still waiting for the child. Let me share with you some verses from Isaiah chapter 9 that if you've, even if you've only been to, to church at Christmas, you would probably recognize. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7, after the birth of Meir Shalal Hashbaz. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, there's the rule, shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Even though the immediate context of Isaiah 7 and the promise of a child as a sign that these kings would not be defeated comes true, we get to chapter 9 and we find out we're still waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. Yes, that baby was born, but that baby is not the baby. That baby is born and those kings are gone, but that baby is not the ultimate baby who will reign over God's people and will ransom them from sin. Why does all this matter? Well, I think the answer is because in Isaiah 7, what it leads us to is only God can do that. Only God can give a baby as a sign that, that warring kings will not conquer you. 
Now, so again, imagine with me the scene. Imagine that you're, you're staring at this opposing army that is camped at your borders and is ready to come conquer you. And God says, I will give you a sign that that enemy will not be victorious over you. And that sign is a baby. It might shock us. It might startle us. But nonetheless, it is the chosen sign. And things came to pass exactly as God said. Now, transfer that analogy immediately to the book of Matthew. You are entrenched in the land of sin. And it is crouching at the door, as we're told in Genesis 4, ready to devour. You are staring down the barrel of the loaded gun of sin, and death is imminent. And what does God do to assure us that this enemy cannot conquer us, that the grave cannot keep us, that death cannot hold us, that we will have life and that the enemy of sin will not be victorious over us? He gives us a baby, divinely and miraculously born, who will one day die so that we don't have to who is able to make a sufficient payment for our sin. It was not only a foretold birth, but it was a prefigured and pre-pictured birth, a baby who would save the people of God from their sin. And just like in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, when there's a, an army standing at the gates, and the sign that they would not have victory as a baby, so that in the end, the only explanation could be, only God can do that. So as we face the enemy of our sin, and God gives a baby, we might say, only God can do that. And thirdly, and very quickly, as we've already alluded to this, it was a saving birth. Verse 21 She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. This is what he came for. He came to be both the righteous and ruling son. He is the ruling son of David, and he is the righteous son of God. And whether you're being introduced to him for the first time today, or whether you've trusted him for 50 years, the question is the same. Who are you trusting? Are you, are you trusting in your goodness to conquer the enemy of sin? Or are you trusting in this baby? Are you tempted, like the Pharisees, to look at the world outside of these doors or on the news and think to yourself, glad I'm not like those sinners. Do you believe 
that there's anybody out there who is beyond saving? I don't. There is no one who is beyond the grace of God. And you know how I know that no one is beyond the grace of God? Because I'm not. And if I'm not, and I'm the greatest sinner I know, then nobody is. Do you believe that there are people who are beyond hope? Maybe you just want forgiveness without the rule of Christ in your life. Maybe you want him to be the righteous Savior, but not the ruling Savior. And I know all of us are going to be like, oh, oh no, that's not me. But a few diagnostic questions might reveal otherwise. Do you think sporadic participation in the church is evidence of God's rule in your life? Do you exercise hospitality, knowing that the king of the kingdom we belong to has commanded it of all of his citizens? Do you give of your time and energy and money to the work of the ministry? Do you share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus? Do you love your wife? Do you respect your husband? Do you guard your eyes on Netflix or the internet? I mean, we could keep going on and on. You don't have to ask many diagnostic questions to see, yeah, pretty frequently in my own life, I reject the rule of Christ in my life. But, but when we trust Jesus... We, it's not like going to a buffet and picking and choosing what parts of his kingdom you want and saying, oh, this package suits me well. It's all or nothing. If he is to you the righteous savior who forgives your sin, he is also the ruling king who dominates your life. And if that sounds bad to you, let me remind you that he is the righteous king who died to save your sin. That's the king who rules our lives. We must not use the salvation that we have received from him as an opportunity to return to the sin that he saved us from. And ultimately, all sin is a rejection of his rule in our lives. He is the Savior who wants to free you from your sin for your own good and my own good, painfully if necessary. But he is also the King who wants to rule over all your life for your good. He is Emmanuel, God with us. If you've never read the book, or as Thad likes to call a book, uh, a, a tablet that does not need charged, it's a great analogy. If you've never read the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I would highly encourage it. And the movie is not good enough here. The movie destroyed it. But the four kids, if you don't know the story, you'll just have to bear with me, they enter into this magical land called Narnia. And they're looking for their brother who's gone to see the white 
Well, he hasn't gotten to that point. The, the, the four kids are in this land, and they encounter Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who take them back to their home. And they're having a conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Edmund slips out uh, at this point in time in the story to go find the white witch. Because he's met her before, and he wants the treats that she has to offer. The other three are left there with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who are talking about going and finding Aslan the next day. And the kids, throughout all of this, have missed the fact that Aslan is a lion. And at one point in time, this, in the conversation, this comes out. And the kids, rightly so, they get a little nervous. And the question as Mrs. Beaver speaks of Aslan, the lion, who in Lewis's writing is representative of Jesus, of this baby, the question is asked of him, is he quite safe? To which Mr. Beaver responds with great enthusiasm, safe? Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Lord, we know that in your kingdom, our sin and our rule is not safe. But you are a good, good father who has redeemed us from our sin through faith in you, who strips us of our love for our sin, painfully if necessarily, loving, out of loving kindness towards us. But Lord, may we never settle for you as Savior without also being ruler. May, may we love you for the fact that you are both the righteous Son of God and the ruling Son of David. May we understand also that there is no sinner too far from your salvation. And may we be willing to proclaim that salvation to the world around us. Let us not seek safety in you, even though there is safety from death and sin and its consequences, but Lord, may we seek your goodness and your glory. Because you are the king. And we want, even when it's difficult for us, to submit to your rule. Would you work that in us, even if it means hardship and trial and struggle and painful separation from our own control in our lives? Would you work that in us, a submission to your will that is for our good and for your glory and for the good of the church and for the spread of the gospel for the salvation of the lost, that, that the whole world might join us as worshipers as we sing your praise. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.